587. Seems like a random number, right? 587. It probably doesn't mean much to you unless it was your locker number in high school or something like that. 587. But that number is far from random, really. It's a number that has stuck in the hearts and minds of millions of people for thousands of years. You see, we have a way, all of us do, of of remembering times and dates and moments when, when profoundly impactful moments in history happen. Often those, those painful moments of history, right? So if I mention the date, September 11, if I just say the numbers, 9-11, you immediately think of, of the World Trade Center towers collapsing. You probably even know where you were when you first heard the news, right? Those moments are etched in your mind. Those numbers stay with you. You probably know where you were, right, when the space shuttle exploded or, or when JFK was assassinated. We remember often those, those powerful and painful moments, like Pearl Harbor Day on December 7. That will be coming up. Or just last week, June 6, D-Day celebration. Well, 587 B.C. is one of those dates. It's one of those numbers for the people of Israel. You see, 587 is the year when they lost everything. Let me give you an all-too-brief history lesson here. Okay? Go back to the Old Testament, right? And and you have the split nations of Israel and Judah. They were once one nation of Israel, right? Under under David and Solomon, and there was rebellion. Now you have the nation of Israel to the north, and you have the nation of Judah to the south. And in that Old Testament time, those two little nations sat between two great world powers. You have huge Egypt down to the south, and now you have rising Babylon to the north, and really nothing in between but Israel and Judah. And and when Israel's glory faded under David and Solomon, they split into two nations. It was Babylon who was rising into power under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so the southern kingdom of Judah watched their northern brothers and sisters get crushed and defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, get carried off into captivity. And now there was no barrier between them and Babylon. They were next in line. And Nebuchadnezzar did come. He came for Judah. He came for their capital city of Jerusalem. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar came three times for the nation of Judah. In the year 605 B.C., he came for the first time and he defeated Jerusalem, making Judah one more country paying tribute to him. He carried off the greatest of the treasures and the smartest of the people into captivity. This is, if you know your Old Testament history, this is when Daniel and his friends were carried off. Some of you are studying the book of Daniel right now. He was in that, that, first, that first group of captives that got taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. About eight years later, Jerusalem and Judah kind of forgot what it meant to be under Babylon. And so they needed a refresher course. So Nebuchadnezzar's army came down again and reminded them what it means to be under Nebuchadnezzar. And then ten years after that, in the year 587... Nebuchadnezzar comes one last time. The people of Judah have, have become stubborn again, right? And they, they have refused. They have refused to submit. They rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. 
And this time he comes and he has no mercy. None. He surrounds the city of Jerusalem with his army. For two, almost two years, the army stays surrounded around Jerusalem, taking it, holding siege against Jerusalem. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out. Almost two years, they're trapped inside their city. They become so desperate for food that in the end, they result to cannibalism. They're eating their neighbors. They're even eating their own children when their children die. They're so desperate. And after almost two years, the city finally collapses. The city finally falls. The Babylonian army rushes in. They loot the whole city. They take everything of value. They set the whole place on fire. They, they, capture, they capture King Zedekiah. And here's how horrible they were in those days. They execute all of his sons in front of him. Then they gouge his eyes out so that the only thing he'll picture for the rest of his life is the death of his sons. Then they take everybody who's anybody into captivity back to Babylon, leaving behind only the poorest of the poor this time. So 587, it's a number they never would forget. It's the lowest and most painful, the most discouraging, the most hopeless moment in their history and in their lives. And into those years, heading up to that horrible reality, God calls Jeremiah to be his prophet. In fact, take out your Bibles. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1, would you? We're going to spend, this is the first week of four, the first week of four that we're going to be spending in the book of Jeremiah. Okay, it's, it's the longest book in the Bible. There's your trivia for the day. If somebody asks you, what's the longest book in the Bible? Jeremiah. More words than any other book in the, in the Scripture. Now, I'm not going to give you a chapter-by-chapter chapter reading plan for the next four weeks, but I certainly would encourage you, hope that you would take the time over these four weeks to read through this book. It, my guess is it's been a while since you've read it, if you've ever even read it. Because we don't spend a lot of time in Jeremiah. Because it's long. And honestly, because it's not a very encouraging book. Right? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for a reason. Okay? And we don't usually enjoy hanging out with people who weep all the time, do we? In fact, people didn't really like hanging out with Jeremiah when he was alive, let alone now that he's dead. He didn't, he didn't have many friends. He wasn't really good company in the time. People back then, again, preferred positive people, encouraging people, hopeful people, not Jeremiah. So if you're looking, if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to take Jeremiah with me to the beach. I'm going to have some good beach reading this summer. Jeremiah is not going to be good beach reading for you, okay? But if you want to hear God's powerful words of warning and his words of hopefulness and grace spoken into the 587s, of our own lives, and you know what that moment is for you, then Jeremiah has a lot to offer us in the next four weeks. Right, so starting here in chapter one of Jeremiah, we hear Jeremiah's call to be a prophet, which, which is a great, great honor, isn't it? To be called by God to be his, his voice, speaking his truth, speaking his words to his chosen people. Listen 
Let's just start at verse 1 of chapter 1 with me. We're going to go through verse, verse 10. It said, The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So there's his calling. He's called to be a prophet. What a privilege. What a joy. There aren't many. And he is selected by God to be his prophet. And just as quickly as he experiences the honor and the joy of being God's spokesperson, it's torn from him as it's revealed that he's going to be a prophet of doom. Right, that last verse, verse 10, you're going to be a prophet who, who uproots and tears down, who destroys and overthrows. And then at the very end, oh yeah, at the end we're going to build and plant too. But your job, Jeremiah, uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow. 587 is coming, Jeremiah. God leads Jeremiah to give the leaders of Judah two powerful images that we're going to look at this morning that, that, that clearly bring God's message to them and to us, summarizes what Jeremiah is going to be telling Judah all these years. So turn a few more pages further to chapter 18 with me. Jeremiah 18, page 631. These two chapters will give us a context within which we can read and understand this book as we go along. So listen, first of all, to what God directs Jeremiah to do in the first 12 verses of chapter 18. So this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not, can I not do this with you, Israel, as this potter does? declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, 
And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it is no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our own evil hearts. So, so Jeremiah shows us the potter hard at work at his potter's wheel. He's, he's forming a pot. He's forming clay. I, I, um, I worked hard all morning long with this Play-Doh to make this beautiful jar, this beautiful vase, right? And so a little less messy than clay. Jeremiah sees the man working, the potter working the clay. And, and the pot that he's working on, that it's spinning, the clay isn't doing what it's supposed to do. It's not going the way it's supposed to go. It's not turning out the way that it's supposed to turn out. Just like I couldn't get this seam out of, out of my beautiful vase here. Grady, you've worked with Play-Doh before, right? So when, when your Play-Doh, whatever you're making, doesn't work, it's not what you want it to be, what do you do with it? You want to show me what you do with it? You take it and you crunch it up, and I bet you start over, don't you? Just like that. Exactly. You end up with a ball of clay and you can go and start again and make exactly what you want to do. And God says, tell Judah, you are my vase and, and you're not turning out the way I intended and I have every right now to crush you and to start over. Jeremiah's message is one, is one, that does give some hope for the future, right? Because there's hope for this future. We can start again. We can rebuild. We can become all that God wanted us to be. Yes, it's going to be painful, but there's hopefulness because I'll start again with you. It's a message of hope for the future. God's gracious judgment can reshape them to be the finished product he intended. And as a preacher, as a prophet, that message will preach. God's not going to leave you in your brokenness. He's going to come. It's going to be painful, but he's going to break you down. He's going to reshape you to be who he wants you to be. There's hopefulness yet. But God immediately tells Jeremiah that his people won't listen to him. His words are going to fall on deaf ears, right? Did you catch verse 12? They'll reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans and each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. So Jeremiah knows from the very start that his message of hopefulness and repentance will be ignored. He can preach, he can prophesy till he's blue in the face and he knows they're not going to listen. In fact, when you read through this book, which I hope you do again, you're going to find that not only is Jeremiah ignored, but he is so hated for speaking the truth of God that he's beaten, he's publicly humiliated, he's arrested, he's imprisoned. At one point, they throw him in a pit and walk away, fully anticipating that he'll starve and die down there. 
until somebody different comes and rescues him. And yet there is Jeremiah speaking the truth of God, even when it means that he stands alone. Even when it means that he stands against the tide and the culture of a nation that's flowing away from God, that's flowing against God, Jeremiah keeps speaking the truth. Right from the very start, Jeremiah knows that his call is an extremely difficult call from God to speak the truth to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Okay, so he knows that they aren't going to hear him. He knows they aren't going to listen. That's what chapter 18 tells him. Then he gets, back sent, he gets sent back to the potter again in chapter 19. And this time, God gives him a very different message. Read the first 15 verses of chapter 19 with me. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of his priests and go out into the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the pot-sheared gate. And there proclaim the words I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call this place Topeth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. In this place I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. This is what I will do to this place and to those who live here, declares the Lord. I will make this city like Topheth. The houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled like this place, Topheth. All the houses where they, are, where they burned incense on the roofs and all the starry hosts poured out drink offerings to other gods. Jeremiah then returned from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and stood in the courts of the temple and said to all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them, because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. 
He goes again to the potter's house, only this time it's different. This time he doesn't have the softened clay pot ready to be reformed and reshaped. This time he's got a pot that's already been fired. It's already hard. And it's broken. And, and what can you do with this pot? Great, I had you reshape that clay before. Can you reshape this one for me? It's not the way I want it. Can you bend it into what, you want, what I really want it to be? You can't really do that, can you? It's not really budging. It's too late. This clay is hard. You can't reshape it. And if it's not what you want it to be, if it's not broken, you have very little option. You have very little choice. The only choice you have is to throw it away. And God says to Jeremiah, go ahead and take it and crash it. There's nothing better to do with a broken pot than to throw it down and break it. And that is what I will do to Jerusalem, to my broken people who have walked away from me, who have refused me. That is what is coming to you, Judah. That is what is coming to you, Jerusalem. The only thing that can do is be destroyed. Jeremiah brings a message of destruction. Their stubborn hearts that refuse to be shaped by God will be shattered. God tells Jeremiah that Babylon is coming and he cannot stop it. Nobody can stop it. It's too late for the people of Judah. It's too late for the people of Jerusalem to repent. They've chosen to worship idols. They've chosen to trust other gods. They have failed to uphold their end of the covenant and they have rightfully earned the punishment that's now coming their way. What a painful message for Jeremiah to bring. And yet, if you choose to read through this book, you're going to hear this again and again. But you will also hear a message of mercy as well. This destruction can't be avoided. But God does offer them a way out through Jeremiah. The hope that Jeremiah can give them comes through surrender. If they surrender to God and in repentance accept their discipline, the discipline will still be there. The consequences are coming. But if they surrender to God, accept their discipline, and if they surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, instead of rebelling against him, instead of rebelling against God's tool of discipline, if they say, okay, we surrender to you, then at least they will live. There's an out for them, right? At least they'll live, but if they continue to rebel, they will die. So Jeremiah gives them a message of mercy. It's not a popular one. It's not one that people really want to hear, but it's there. So right from this very start here, Jeremiah is given an extremely difficult purpose from God. He is called to speak the truth of God to a world that doesn't want to listen, that doesn't want to hear it. And that's where you and I need to start here this morning as well, as we begin our journey with Jeremiah. Jeremiah reminds us that you and I too were given, have been given a difficult call from God to speak God's truth to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Right? Yes, yes, the message of forgiveness and grace and salvation through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection that we have to offer to this world that's imprisoned by sin is good news. 
right? That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. We have good news to share with this world. They too can be saved. But at the same time, God calls every single one of us now to be his prophetic voice. God doesn't call just a few prophets here and there now. He calls all of us to be prophets, to be his prophetic voice, speaking into that culture, into this world, what God has to say. We are commanded to speak the truth and to always pair God's truth with God's love. Right? And yet so often we stay silent. So often we fail to speak truth because, because we think we're being loving, right? That's not loving when we stay silent about God's truth. The most unloving thing that Jeremiah could have done was to keep his mouth shut, right? It would have been unloving for him not to warn the people about God's coming judgment, it would have been unloving for him not to plead with them, please surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't fight him, please surrender, otherwise you will die. The most loving thing was to speak. It would have been unloving for him to stay silent and to simply continue to let them sacrifice their children to Baal. Allow them to continue to ignore God's truth. Just continue to listen to the false prophets telling you that everything's okay. That they got nothing to worry about. Nebuchadnezzar won't come. It would have been unloving for him to stay silent. And allow them to continue to make choices that would lead to their 587. And it's unloving of us. When we choose to keep our mouths shut when we refuse to speak on behalf of God. Truth that might be painful, difficult to hear, but truth that might also help somebody experience the grace of God rather than the consequences of their bad choices. Truth that might help them to maybe avoid, at least minimize, whatever 587 is coming their way. Do we, like Jeremiah today, dare to stand with God and stand for God when it's hard, when it's unpopular, when we don't get rewarded for it? Do we dare to speak God's truth in love to a culture that doesn't want to hear it, to family members and friends who don't want to hear it, who don't want to listen? Will we keep speaking the truth even when we see no progress? Will you, will I, will we together as Ivan Rest Church, will the whole family of God, will we speak and will we act on unpopular truths? Right? Will, will we speak and act on the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? Because our culture doesn't want to hear that. Will we speak and act on the truth that God calls us to specifically care for the poor and the homeless and the sick and the refugees, even if it costs us? Because Jesus said that from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted much, much more will be asked. That's not a popular message. Will we keep saying it and living it? Will the family of God, will we continue to speak and act on the truth that all people matter immensely to God? All people are loved by him. 
And so we'll fight against the evils of racism and sexism and nationalism and classism. Will you and I speak and act on the truth that this creation is God's masterpiece and we're commanded to care for it? Will you and I act and speak on the truth that sex is a wonderful gift from God designed to bring us wholeness and joy only within the the bonds of marriage relationship? Will you and I continue to speak and act on the truth that money and possessions are dangerous idols that can possess us? Will we speak and act on the truth that we are made rich for the expect purpose of being generous, of giving it away? Will you and I speak and act on the truth that there is a moral standard that God has given everyone to strive for and there is grace and forgiveness when we fail? Because our culture doesn't want to hear any of that. They don't want to hear any of it. None of those truths will make us popular. Right? Believing them, speaking them, living them might possibly leave you like Jeremiah with fewer friends as a lonely voice speaking all by yourself might leave you with disappointment, maybe even great pain as it did him. But speaking them and acting on them will definitely leave you like Jeremiah. Faithful, faithful to God, faithful to those around us who need to hear God's truth, even when they might not want to. You know, as we, as we read Jeremiah's journey as a prophet sent by God, I hope that you will not help but be able to hear God's difficult call to be prophets ourselves, to be his voice in this wilderness to take a stand for what God stands for. Even in the face of opposition. Even if you know that the odds are long. Jeremiah knew his odds of success were zero. And he stood strong. That difficult call, I'll tell you up front, will lead to painful moments. Perhaps your own 587 will be tied to your choice to be obedient and faithful to God. It might be. It would be so much easier for, for us just to go with the flow of the culture around us, wouldn't it? It would be so much easier keep our mouths shut, live along with the world. But faithfulness demands that we choose something other than easy. Faithfulness demands that we learn from Jeremiah. That we hear God's call to be his prophets, to speak his truth in our words and in our actions to a broken world, to a friend, to a neighbor, to a family member, to a refugee or an immigrant that so badly needs to know that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is grace. There is a better way. There's mercy. And faithfulness doesn't count the cost first. Jeremiah didn't count the cost. When we're faithful to God's call, we're faithful no matter what. No matter the cost. 
no upfront Jeremiah is not going to be a, a pleasant, happily ever after book. That's okay. You know why? Because you probably already know that life itself is not a pleasant, happily ever after story either. You know it in your own life. We have all had our 587 moments, haven't we? And we're going to talk about those in the coming weeks. And as we walk with Jeremiah towards his 587, with ours in mind, we're going to find God present with him. God present with us. Every step along the way. Carrying us faithfully through. In our 587s, we will find his mercy and his grace in the most unexpected places as we stand faithful for him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning for the good news that we have. The good news of salvation that you have given us through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. As we sit here, we are acutely aware of your grace because we know our own sin and our own guilt. Each of us here can name it. We can see it. And yet we know of your forgiveness as well. This baptism we celebrated here this morning reminds us of your grace. That even in our brokenness and our sin, you chose us. We are yours and we are now held in the grip of grace. Thank you for that good news. And Father, because you have chosen us, because you have saved us by your grace, you have now made us your children. You have now empowered us to be prophet, priest, and king. We are called to be prophets. That good news has brought with it great challenges. Father, give us our prophetic voice so that we might speak your truth in the middle of the challenges of life and the challenges are real. We know that. You told us, Jesus, while you were here on this earth, you said, in this world you will have trouble. So often, Father, we expect that if we're faithful to you, that means trouble will go away. And if we have trouble, it must mean we haven't been faithful. God, you didn't make those connections. To even your most faithful children, you said, in this world, you will have trouble. We will not be exempt from the brokenness of this world. In fact, if anything, Father, you told us that we'll become greater targets for Satan's wrath. And so, Father, as we journey this life, help us to trust you every step along the way. In the midst of the challenges, in the midst of our own 587s, Father, help us be faithful every step along the way. We pray for those in our community who are walking through those challenging times, for Dale and for Chris, for Isaac and for Dorothy. We pray for others who are weary from, from the daily pain, from the loss that continues to break their hearts, 
from the sorrow that just won't fade and won't go away. Father, give them yourself so that they may stay faithful through the challenges. Give all of us the comfort and strength that we need in our 587s so that we might stay faithful to you, God. And we recognize, too, this morning that your good news, your salvation, your grip of grace on our hearts and our lives comes with a difficult call for each one of us. We are called to speak your words, to be your witnesses, to speak your truth to a world that doesn't want to hear your words. We're called not to fit in with this world, but we are called to stand countercultural for you. We're called to be different, to speak different words, to live different actions, to make different choices, to hold to different values, to live out different behaviors than the culture and the world around us. We're called to do that at work, at school, in the neighborhood, in every aspect of our lives. Give us the courage, Father, not to fit in but to live your truth and to live your grace and to live your message to this broken world. Give us the courage to be faithful to you, to be different because we're being like Jesus. Father, you know the 587s of all of our lives, the difficult challenges, those deeply painful moments. You know them because you are there with us in the middle of them. And so for those of us who are walking through those moments right now, make us aware of your strength and your love, your power and your grace, and your salvation and your promise that nothing can ever separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. And so in those times we set our sights on Christ alone and the victory that is ours through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship team, would you come forward? All of you, would you please stand with us? We're going to wrap up our worship.